today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. the person, Paul says, who didn't have the law of God. You, you violate your conscience. And this is his point he's making. None of us can say that we've never violated our conscience. Whether you know the Bible or not, the reality is every single one of us would have to admit that at some point in our life, we have violated our conscience. And the moment you violate your conscience, you are recognizing in rebellion against God. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Romans. Everyone was created with the capacity to understand what's right or wrong. It's a moral compass given by God. So the hypocrite is still guilty because he has a conscience. The Jews believed they were safe because of their heritage. But Paul explains that circumcision won't determine your conduct. It's all about the heart. So nobody is without excuse before God. Pastor Gary will teach that the heathen, the hypocrite, and the Hebrew are all guilty because God's revealed himself through creation, conscience, and commandments. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Romans chapter 2 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Don't look at other people as you're worse than I am. Because we're all guilty before God. And so in verse 2 he says, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment, when you're being judgmental on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Okay, he's saying it's hypocritical. He says, verse 4, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing, this is a great verse, that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. God's kindness leads you toward repentance. You know, sometimes people have this view of God that he kind of beats you into repentance. God is a merciful, patient, and loving God. And I can tell you in my own life, the thing that moves me towards God is when I begin to realize he's so patient and forgiving with me. And it moves us toward God because it breaks our heart and we begin to realize, God, you you have been so patient and you've been putting up with my miserable life. And so I'm just so thankful. It's his kindness that leads us towards repentance. And Paul is saying here is if you're just judgmental towards other people, you are worse in terms of the wrath that you are expressing than God is who is patient and loving towards those that he wants to lead into repentance. And how do we think that we come to repentance except also by God's kindness that leads us there? 
In verse 5, he says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. And he quotes there from Psalm 62. In verse 7, he says, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, meaning God's glory, honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All right, so there's a little bit of, it sounds like works-oriented instruction here, but don't misunderstand what he's saying here. He's not saying if you're good enough, you can get to God. He's saying because you're not good enough, you can't get to God. Okay? This is the same argument, basically, that Jesus made in Luke chapter 18. You don't need to turn there, but there's this conversation that Jesus has with, with a rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. The story is also given to us in Mark chapter 10. And this rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he says to him, Good teacher, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus responds after he asks him a question. Why do you call me good? He says, no one is good except God alone. But then he says this. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Now stop and think about that answer for just a moment. Because this guy comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why does Jesus not say, if you believe in me, your sins will be forgiven and that's how you get eternal life? I mean, that's the gospel message, isn't it? Why is it that Jesus instead quotes from the Ten Commandments. And he mentions five of the Ten Commandments. And actually, what's unique about Jesus' answer is, Jesus focuses on the second tablet of the testimony. Now, the commandments were broken into two tablets. One through four were on tablet one. Five through ten were on tablet two. Five through ten had to do with the horizontal, your relationship with one another. This guy had those things down. Jesus quotes the law here. He says, well, don't commit adultery, having to do with the horizontal, our relationship to one another. Don't murder one another. Don't steal one another. Don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother. That's all one another. Why is it that Jesus did not point to himself, instead he pointed to the law? Because he's highlighting for this guy that in theory, if you could obey everything in the law, you'd be good enough. And so this guy had the second tablet down. He's like, okay, I'm good to go. Got it down. And Jesus then adds, he says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And what was Jesus doing? He was highlighting a couple of the commandments on the first tablet. Having to do with have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. This guy's possession had become his God, and this guy's possession had become idols to him. And so Jesus confronted him on the vertical. The first tablet is about your relationship with God, the vertical. Oh, this guy had the horizontal, fine. But it was the vertical that was lacking. And when this guy realized that he had violated the first part of the tablets, the first few commandments, he recognized in himself that he had fallen short. Sadly, though, tragically, he left and walked away and didn't respond. 
But when Jesus says all this about the law, in theory, he was saying, if you could just keep all the commandments, that's how you get eternal life. What was he pointing out? You can't keep all the commandments, can you? And because you can't keep all the commandments, you need a savior. Now, Paul is making a similar argument here. He's like, you know, if if you would just do good, then you'll get eternal life. If you do evil, you're going to be sentenced and you're going to experience the wrath of God. But the fact is that even the hypocrite, if you will, who doesn't even have the commandment of Moses, who doesn't even know the law, you're guilty because you know you haven't done everything good and right in your life, have you? And he goes on then to build the case further. Verse 12, all who sin apart from the law, as he's addressing the the Gentiles here primarily, will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. That's the next group he's going to talk about, the Jews. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, he says, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, here's the word, their consciences, also bearing witness, and their thoughts, now accusing, now even defending them. And this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. All right. So circle the word conscience there. Let me just pause and focus on this word just a little bit. Because here's what he's saying. He's saying, okay, you Gentiles may not have the law. You may not have the commandments where you clearly understand this is what God says is right and this is what he says is wrong. But Paul says, I'll tell you what you do have. You have conscience. And you have conscience because God has created you in his image and in his likeness and he has put within you a moral compass. Now I want you to think of a conscience like that. It is a moral compass. And just like you take a real compass, if you were to hold a real compass in your hand to find direction, what is north? Well, a compass will always align itself with the poles of the earth, and it will always be pointing true north. Your moral compass is that God capacity within us that he has given us by virtue of creating us in his image and likeness. I'm not talking about Christians. I'm talking about everybody, including Christians. And everybody's been given this moral compass. And it always is pointing, do God. And that we have an understanding, it's an instinctive, intuitive understanding of right versus wrong. Everybody can read that news feed about another shooting, and we can know instinctively that's wrong. You don't have to have a Bible to know, you know, that's wrong. What some gunman did to walk in and start shooting innocent people like that. Everybody knows it's wrong. Now, I'm going to tell you the only people who don't know it's wrong And those are people that in the world are called sociopaths. No, a sociopath, and this this person might have very well been one, I don't know. But a sociopath is someone who has a seared conscience. Now, in the Bible, it talks about conscience a lot. It talks about having a good conscience. The Bible talks about having a clear conscience. The Bible talks about having a corrupted conscience or a weak conscience. And then the worst is having a seared conscience where you have continued to do things over and over again to the point when you no longer have a conviction about right and wrong, it's called a sociopath. And most psychologists believe that sociopaths emerge in life because of some traumatic event that happened in their childhood where they've not been able to reasonably understand right from wrong. And, uh, and, you know, unfortunately, I read this statistic, this is not very encouraging, but Dr. Martha Stout from Harvard University 
She's a psychologist from Harvard University. She wrote a book called The Sociopath Next Door. I didn't read it. I'm not, I'm not recommending you read it. But here's one stat from the book. She claims, Dr. Stout claims, that one out of every 25 people in America is a sociopath. And she defines sociopath as a person with no conscience. One out of 25. Now, look down your row and count 25. And if they all look okay, you're it. That's a sad statistic, isn't it? One out of 25. I hope that number's not true, but what the sociopath is is a person who has a seared conscience, no sense of right and wrong, and so they just do whatever they want, okay? But other than a sociopath, we have all been, even the sociopath was created, but somehow it got damaged, their moral compass got damaged, and a lot of times, tragically, no fault of their own. So it really is a tragic psychological disorder. Uh, but all of us have been created with a capacity to understand right from wrong. Now, I, I don't even know, you know, I, I learned this uh, several years ago, that you can be convicted of a crime, and it has nothing to do with whether you knew the law explaining whether it was right or wrong. That the way that conviction goes, whether it's even getting a ticket for speeding, or whether it's something more egregious than that is, you can be convicted on the basis of, here's the quote, whether you knew or should have known. It is not based on whether or not you had the knowledge of it. It can be based on whether or not you should have known. And that's the same condition of the human soul. That God, his wrath is ready to be expressed to us because of what we know or what we should have known. And the reason we should have known it is because he's given within us this capacity to have a moral compass knowing right from wrong. And so even the person, Paul says, who didn't have the law of God, you, you violate your conscience. And this is his point he's making. None of us can say that we've never violated our conscience. Whether you know the Bible or not, the reality is every single one of us would have to admit that at some point in our life, we have violated our conscience. And the moment you violate your conscience, you are recognizing in rebellion against God that your life is a life without submission to him. And so Paul says, so those without a conscience are also guilty. You've been given a conscience, but you deny it, you violate it, and so therefore you're just as guilty as the person who's a heathen, and they have denied God because of how he's revealed himself in creation. All of us have been given a conscience. Don't violate your conscience. God has given it to you. When you have that, you know, however you want to describe it, it's that, you know, internal kind of conviction like, this is probably not right. Probably shouldn't be doing this. Probably shouldn't be looking at this. Probably shouldn't say this. Don't violate your conscience. Wouldn't it be great if we had some kind of a conscience alarm that went off, you know, like loudly, externally, even, every time we were about ready to violate it? I mean, you know, it would blow your cover. Everybody would know you're about ready to violate your conscience. <laughs> but it would be a tremendous thing. I mean, you know, I remember, like, I've told this story before, but, you know, we... We had a family dog that, you know, we had to put down and we got this electric fence for her. So, you know, and I installed it around our backyard and uh, 
which, you know, it never, it never worked the way it was supposed to. Okay, I don't know if I didn't, maybe I didn't bury it, maybe I buried it too deep, I don't know. And so, you know, and then you get the collar for the dog, and then whenever the dog gets close to the perimeter, there's this, you know, beeping sound that the dog hears on the collar, and then they know after a while they begin to learn because if they get close enough, they get this small electric shock in, in their neck through the collar. It's perfectly fine. Don't, you know, send me emails about Harambe. But... Um, <laughs> And so the dog learns, like, when the beeping starts, don't go any closer because it's going to result in a shock. And our dog would learn how to get around it, much like we learn to get around our conscience. It's like, I hear this beeping sound, and I know it's going to be shocking, but I'm just going to... And so she would she'd get a running start, and she'd be far away, and then she just she knew when the beeping would start, and then she'd back up and just take off. And then, and then it would just be a moment of, you know, one quick little shock, and then she'd be gone. And so it never really worked effectively, and so it became a useless thing. And then one day, I noticed, and so here's Austin sitting on the front row down here, and how old were you? Maybe 12, somewhere in that age range. I see him out through, we're, Terry and I are in the kitchen, we look through our window, and Austin's got the collar on. <laughs> He's like, well, you know, it doesn't seem to work for Augie, I'm going to see if it works for me. And so, and you know, and Terry's saying to me, like, go tell him, take that thing off, he's going to get shocked. And I said, no, this is going to be delicious. <laughs> and I, I was like, no, we're going to watch this, this is going to be wonderful. I said, honey, it won't kill him. It's going to be fine. It's a mild shock. Besides, I know CPR. It's going to be fine. <laughs> and, so, and so he strapped that thing on. And sure enough, you know, the beeping sound, we watched him get right near it. And then we saw this action. <laughs> it was incredible. It was wonderful. And it does explain a lot now, if you know anything about him. <laughs> but my point is, wouldn't that be great if, like, we had a conscience collar? And the moment you, you know, you started watching something you shouldn't be watching, yeah! The moment you started saying something or flirting with somebody you shouldn't be flirting, and that conscious collar went off. Anyway, I digress. But here's the deal. We have a conscious collar, and it's called a moral compass that God has given us, and that's why those who violate their conscience are without excuse, Paul says, because God's given that to you. So don't go around saying, well, I didn't know, and I didn't know better, and God didn't, and I don't have a Bible and stuff, because he says, you're going to be guilty before God just because you've been violating your conscience that he has given you as a moral compass. And this will take place in the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. He moves on to the second group, verses 17 through uh, the end of the chapter. And now this deals with a third group, the Jews, the Hebrews. The Hebrews are also convicted, just like the Gentiles, but for a different reason. God has revealed himself to them through commandments. They, they have the law of God. And so in verse 17, he says, now, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law... Okay, there's commandments. And brag about your relationship to God if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you were instructed by the law. If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Okay, let me pause there. You understand that the Jewish people were, were proud about their heritage. Nothing wrong with being proud about your heritage except when you think that your heritage makes you a good enough person that you're kind of exempt from the rules. And Paul's argument is, you know, you've been given the commandments, you've been given the direct revelation of God. You have a higher accountability and responsibility to not be a lawbreaker. He says, but how's it going for you? Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? 
You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. By the way, I think this is a great application, not just for the Jew, but also for the Christian. Because when we violate the commandments of God, and we claim to be a Christian, and then we're out in our workplace, and we're doing stuff that is clearly against the Word of God, and people who don't even know the Word of God know that we're not living like a Christian, like we profess to be, we blaspheme the name of God in front of our co-workers or our friends who aren't saved because of our hypocrisy. And so he calls them on this. He says, you know, you go around saying, thou shalt not steal. You ever stolen anything? You go around saying, don't commit adultery, it's terrible. You committed adultery yourself? You ever done stuff that you have said to others you should not do? He says, well, as a result of your hypocrisy, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He adds in verse 25, he says, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Let me, let me translate that. Basically what he's saying is a Gentile who obeyed his conscience would be more justified than a circumcised Jew who did not obey the law. That's what he's saying there. Circumcision was a rite of passage to identify the Jew as belonging to the people of God. It was part of what God instructed Abraham to do and all the male descendants afterwards. And the sign of circumcision was a sign that you were a Jew and that you belonged to God. But he says here, okay, that's a value as far as the, the covenant of circumcision through Abraham. But if you just say, well, I've been circumcised and therefore... Because you have a mark in your body, that somehow now justifies you. And you can feel like you go around breaking the law. It's no big deal because after all, I've been circumcised. He says, you're more guilty than the Gentile who has not necessarily been circumcised, but obeys his conscience. So don't go around saying, well, I have the law and I have circumcision and therefore I'm okay. He says, are you a lawbreaker? He says in verse 28, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart. That's a key word here. By the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, this, and then we'll close here. He basically says, listen, it's not about the external. A mark in your flesh, the written law. He says it's about the internal. What's your heart like with God? Because you can be circumcised, but if your heart isn't right, the mark on your flesh means nothing. And you can say you have the law, but if you don't obey the law because your heart isn't right, you're guilty too. So he gets through making this argument that the heathen, the hypocrite, and the Hebrew, everybody's guilty because God has revealed himself through creation, conscience, and commandments. Now, in chapter 3, which we'll get to next week, Lord willing, when he summarizes all this, is that all humanity is guilty, then he moves into the good news about how we can be made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. So a lot of good stuff coming following all of the bad news, but we can't appreciate the good news until we first understand the bad news of humanity. Oh,
As you've been learning from this study in Romans, every person on earth has sinned and deserves the punishment of eternity separated from God. Jesus changed all of that, though. He came to die in your place, to give you grace, and to offer you the gift of life with Him in heaven forever. Are you ready to accept this gift? We'd love to talk with you more about it, so give us a call at 703-771-1500. That number again is 703-771-1500. We'd like to also direct you to our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Under the Grow tab, click on How to Get to Heaven to hear from Pastor Gary about this important decision. We're so excited for you. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Cornerstone Connection, you'll find them at cornerstoneconnection.cc as well, or download our mobile app to take them with you wherever you go. We'd love to meet you too, so if you live in or are visiting the Leesburg area, come visit us at Cornerstone Chapel. We meet each Sunday and Wednesday to spend time in prayer and worship and studying the Bible, and we're excited to have you join us. You'll find directions on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for tuning in today for Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know 